Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, an LSU professor tells us about new flood modeling techniques and how it'll help better predict flooding and hurricanes. And we'll go back into the archives to hear two Mardi Gras Indians discuss the personal pride that comes with sewing their intricate costumes. But first, two Baton Rouge area elementary teachers last week were recognized with the Milken Educator Award, a nationwide honor sometimes described as the Oscars of teaching. The awards were presented to the teachers as a surprise at a school-wide assembly at their respective schools last week. With us, we have Derricka Duncan, a science teacher at Conn Elementary School in Port Allen, and Elise Frederick, a teacher at Lakeside Primary School in Prairieville. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I know it's early days after you were bamboozled with the surprise recognition, but can you tell me about how this award has affected your outlook as a teacher so far? Um, It's pretty much been an amazing feeling knowing that now I have this new recognition that I can share with people. Meeting people, um, strangers, and always telling them I'm a teacher is very difficult for me because people seem to kind of have this perception that being a teacher is horrible. And every time I say I'm an educator, they say, oh, I feel so sorry for you. And so now with this award, I kind of feel like I'm waiting for that moment when somebody says, are you a teacher? And I can proudly say, yes, I'm a great teacher. I won this amazing award and I can give them more information and hopefully change the perception of this career. Elise, why why don't you tell me what your reaction has been and how it kind of has colored your outlook on, on what you do? Um, so far, it's been an amazing experience. I was thinking, why why me? Um, so that night, I went on the Milken Educator Awards website and looked at some of the selection criteria. Um, and one of the things that was one of the criteria was that they're giving the award to people who offer strong, long-range potential for professional and policy leadership. So I really realized, well, they're investing in me. So I know that this award was for what I've done, but it's also for future work that is expected of me. So it kind of gives me a sense of responsibility. And I understand you didn't apply for this award. You didn't ask for it. Somebody, I guess you probably don't know who, suggested, uh, nominated you for this award. Derricka, How does that make you feel? It makes me feel honored, like to know that I'm being recognized on the state level, that someone actually knows the work and the contributions. It gets frustrating to think that other people don't realize the time and energy and sacrifices that teachers, they they put in the work that they do. Derricka, what are some of the most important improvements you would hope to see in public education here in Louisiana? And how would this impact your students? I really think that teachers need to be compensated more. Um, Of course, there should be an increase on teacher pay, but more maybe so like incentive pay. Um, A lot of times, speaking to other teachers, I hear that they may have to work over the summer to make ends meet, and they're sacrificing their time from their own families. And as an educator, we spend more time with other people's children, and we pour into others' kids often more than we can to our own. And I think that we shouldn't have to choose between going to our children's soccer games or practices to have a second job to make ends meet. It would just attract more teachers, attract more people to the profession, because a lot of people, I think, have that that willingness to want to teach, but it's the desire for more money that sends them to other career choices. Yeah. Do you see a lot of teachers exiting the career? Yes, I do. I see some exiting, but then I also see them coming back. So that shows that there are some joys to teaching. Elise, what kind of support do you think your fellow teachers could really use, support that's not necessarily acknowledged right now? 
Well, Louisiana recently has made great strides in literacy, and my passion is early literacy. So moving forward, I'm hoping for continued funding for literacy, professional development, and then also support in the classroom implementation of those evidence-based literacy practices. Because we're learning a lot, but sometimes it's hard to know how do we put that research into practice. Just having that support would be really helpful, I think. And then also, like Derricka said, more people being drawn to the education profession. Also, um, I noticed one of the goals of the Milken Educator Awards is to encourage able, caring, and creative people to choose teaching as a career. And also, I mean, we need subs. If anybody's interested in becoming a teacher, put yourself in the schools, go sub and, and see if it's for you. Uh, Elise, you mentioned techniques and evidence-based techniques. Derricka, what sort of techniques do you use that were perhaps never taught to you when you were being educated as a teacher, but are ones that maybe you picked up from elsewhere or maybe innovated yourself? One thing I definitely wasn't taught was to teach without a book or a pencil. I think about our college professors, they drilled like, you know, the importance of having students being able to write and like she said, the focus on literacy. But oftentimes I'm a science teacher, so I love hands-on learning. And a day in my classroom, sometimes we never pick up a pencil. But I think about the way my students learn. They often share how they learned this new trend on TikTok. They learned this. They saw a post and it didn't really require them to write anything, but they're still learning and they're able to engage in conversations and discussions and they're able to provide feedback. Something that will pique their interest, but they're still learning. So that's definitely not really the traditional classroom, but I've still seen the most growth in my students from those methods, and I stand by it. Hmm. We're speaking with Derricka Duncan, a West Baton Rouge Parish fifth grade teacher, and Elise Frederick, an Ascension Parish elementary school teacher. Both of our guests today were recognized last week with the Milken Educator Award. Elise, what are some of the most valuable things that you have learned from your colleagues uh, that you hope are repeated in classrooms across the state? I've worked with some of the most amazing people. I'm on my 14th year of teaching now. Um, one of the biggest things that I think helps me is problem solving around the challenges that we encounter because there are a lot of factors that we have no control over, but there are many, many, many factors that we can control. So when we get together and problem solve around things that we can control and we share resources and we share ideas and things that may have worked for us, um, that's when... I think I really learn a lot from those people around me. Derricka, you've received this special recognition, but not every teacher who goes above and beyond is recognized for their efforts. In what ways could we better recognize our teachers? Um, I think my district does a great job of recognizing the teachers around the district, and it's always great to see those things, to see, you know, your name in big lights, I would say. But I think also teachers deserve more than just your name on a social media post. Um, it goes back to incentive pay. And it's not all about the money, but I just compare. I have some wonderful friends, and they have wonderful careers, and they talk about how when they meet this quota, they get this big bonus. And I think about what would that be like for educators if, you know, if our students met their growth level, then there was some type of incentive pay. I think that that would really motivate your struggling teachers to put in some extra time and meet with others to actually find the skills and resources they need so that they can better meet the needs of their students. It would help teachers to really feel like all of the work that I'm pouring into my students, I'm being compensated for it. 
Elise? What I wish my fellow educators would get would be more money. Um, I think we should be recognized by our expertise by paying us like the future depends on us and recognize that our profession is the profession that makes all others possible. And I think that's how we should be paid. Derica, what are some of the positive changes that you're seeing in K-12 education today? Changes that maybe listeners might not be aware of if they're not themselves involved in education, if they're not teachers or parents. What's going on that parents don't necessarily see that you would really like for them to be aware of? Our state is doing a lot of focus on social emotional learning, and we're adopting many programs to focus on that. And the social emotional learning is going to help improve the student's academic performance, and it's also going to combat a lot of the bullying. But with these type of programs, we're able to teach students um, how to um, really combat their emotions and think things through and problem solve amongst themselves. Um, and we do see a decrease in some of those negative behaviors. And parents need to see that the state of Louisiana, we are making strides and hopefully we can see a decline on just those negative behaviors that escalate when they get to middle and high school. Elise? Well, I kind of spoke to literacy earlier. A few years ago when I was teaching, in the morning I would teach kids how to read, and then in the afternoon we were reading these books that the kids were really just looking at the pictures and kind of reciting. It was more like reciting a poem, you know, repetitive text where you just look at the picture to say the last word. And I was really confused, like, they're not using any of the skills that they learned this morning whenever I was teaching them phonics and how to read. And now they're doing something completely different whenever I'm telling them to read. So just know that we're not doing that anymore. And we're all learning about why that's not appropriate instruction. It's a really positive change. And I think that our children's literacy outcomes are going to be much brighter now. Elise Frederick, an Ascension Parish Elementary School teacher, thank you for your time today. Thank you. And Derricka Duncan, a West Baton Rouge Parish fifth grade teacher, thank you for your time as well. Thank you so much. This is Louisiana Considered. When a hurricane strikes, it's not just the immediate wind and rain damage that causes concern. Many are also forced to grapple with flooding and often... Like in the case of Hurricane Katrina, the water rises and stays for days at a time. Now, the LSU Department of Oceanography and Coastal Science and the Center for Computation and Technology there are working together to better predict flooding after hurricanes. Their new computer modeling approach also aims to better assist communities with disaster planning. For more on improving the accuracy of flooding predictions, we're joined by LSU's Associate Professor George Schwa. Thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. So... How exactly does this modeling system work? What are the, the simulations that you're running? Uh, essentially, uh, what's different from other systems is that we call this technology a coupled modeling. So coupled modeling means like we run the simulation for flooding prediction. You can run a river model or we call it a hydrology model or we can run a ocean model or storm surge model. But for this modeling technique is we run these models simultaneously. So these two models can talk to each other like communication at a very high frequency so we can better represent what happens during a hurricane event in terms of compound flooding. Hmm. So it sounds like traditional modeling and forecasting will be based off one set of factors, and you're doing complex modeling where you have one thing interacting with another thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, Think about like uh, the best analogy about this. So uh, 
you can think about that the traditional way, like you are texting your preteen teenager daughter that you need to put layers of clothes when the weather is 60 degrees. And uh, you never expect any feedback from your daughter, right? So then like a slightly more advanced than that, we have, we call something called a two-way coupling. It, like you text your co-workers doing works, right? So you send out a message and your co-workers, he or she will send back another message and you can still communicate, but sometimes your communication will be disrupted. So this like uh, we call a dynamically coupled model is the river model and ocean model communicate all the time. Like discuss like uh, with your partners on a dinner table. So the communication of passing the information, in this case, water levels, velocities, or contaminants to another party will be much more effective. And at the same time, you will get the response from your partner very effective. Okay. Yeah. So to have these models interacting with each other and informing each other to build a better model, I understand you're using supercomputers. There's a lot of computing power behind this. Can you tell me about what kind of computing power you have to put behind this and, you know, what it takes to do that kind of that kind of calculating? Oh, yes. Uh, all these, uh, these advances in these models will not be possible without the advancement in supercomputing. And very fortunate is LSU hosts one of the best supercomputing facility in the country. And uh, for example, uh, for my simulation, we not only run ocean model, but at the same time, we run river model. And the platform we have been using, we can run the atmospheric model at the same time, just like the weather forecast. Mm. So each of these kind of experiments use about, I would say, 500 to 1,000 cores. And uh, each mm -hmm. computation takes about 20 hours to forecast next 72 hours. <laughs> so, yeah. And meanwhile, my computer has four cores. <laughs> exactly. That's what you mean. And by the way, like... My group used a lot of like supercomputing each year. For example, like each year on average, we use more than 10 million, we call SUs each year, service unit that is per core per hour. Hmm. Yeah. I know this modeling looks at a lot of different regions, like geographically. How are you able to predict which areas are the most vulnerable when it comes to flooding? Uh, this published study is about uh, Cape Fear River in North Carolina, but this kind of modeling system is transferable. For example, we got recent research funding from NASA that will support us to perform a similar simulation in the Beltera Bay, Galveston, and also Port Aranus. And in terms of uh, which part is more vulnerable, I would say that every hurricane is different. Like their strength is different. Where they're going to land is different. How much rainfall they're going to bring into the coast is different. And what the storm surge looks like will be different. So it's a combination of uh, many different processes. So I think the best practice will be is we do some research in advance of any big event so we can be better prepared. You've stated that your modeling allows you to assist both short-term forecasts as well as future climate and sea level conditions, kind of in a long-term mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. How is the modeling approach for long and short-term scenarios different, and why is it important to look at both? Yeah, for example, like when we talk about forecast, there's a difference between forecast and projection. If we talk about the weather forecast, that's what's going to happen in the next 72 hours. And if we talk about projection, we talk about long-term, like 10 years from now, 50 years from now. For short-term forecast, we use this uh, model result from like uh, National Hurricane Center and their model result on our regional model. So we can focus on relatively 
smaller region. For example, you can build a hyper-resolution model purely for New Orleans, and we can incorporate all the complexity in terms of like uh, buildings, uh, bathymetry, uh, human intervention, all these kind of details. Mm. And at the, at the same time, um, there's researchers working on these global climate models, or something we call IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change. They continuously publish all these different projections of sea level rise. For example, I think the most recent one predicts that by 2050 in the Gulf region, we can expect an average two feet of water level increase. And how can we incorporate that kind of information to our flooding model forecast? That is another uh, stream of tasks. Okay. We're speaking with George Schwa, Associate Professor at the LSU Department of Oceanography and Coastal Science and LSU's Center for Computational Technology. We're talking about some computer modeling that they hope better predicts flooding. Now, let me ask you, how might this modeling help communities better prepare for disasters? Um, some might argue that Louisianans already are always thinking about hurricanes and natural disasters. What additional information does this modeling provide? Uh, I think a very immediate advance is that we can improve the accuracy of our water level forecast by 40%. That is what demonstrated in, in our newly published paper. Hmm. So in other words, is we can better predict how high the water will be. 40%, a 40% uh, increase in accuracy. Uh, yeah, in the real world, Cal, what does a 40% increase in accuracy equate to? So if we run the model in a traditional way, we extract result from a river model and use that to drive the ocean model and we can predict a set of water levels during the hurricane landing. But then we compare their results with our newly developed, we call it two-way coupled model. We compare the performance of these two sets of model against what we observed. So that is where the 40% increase in the accuracy achieved. And speaking about comparing your models with what's observed, I know that you, along with the research team, recently published a study in the Journal of Advances in Modeling Earth Systems, where you use the events of Hurricane Florence to demonstrate the validity of your new approach. What did you find there? Yeah, for Hurricane Florence, I think our biggest finding is that a large amount of fresh water was piling into the Cape Fear Basin. About 20 days after the landing of the hurricane, this entire estuary has been washed out by more than 10 times. So we cannot achieve that kind of assessment without this kind of coupled modeling. And the other advance I would say is that we began to systematically investigate the compound effect between the two processes. In this case, we have water piling from the ocean as the storm surge. We have flash flood from this uh, rainfall. And this analogy here is that in this case, one plus one not equals two. At a certain place, this effect could be like 2.5. But at a certain place, this effect could be like dampened into 1.5. So that is how we can further improve the prediction of flooding levels. Hmm. What would you say is the most important way to manage flooding? If you know that the flooding is likely to hit your neighborhood and maybe even your house, what should you do? How can you use this information to be better prepared, better manage your flooding? Uh, I think that's a good question. This is really a question of the entire research community is how can we transfer what we have developed into like uh, daily usage, right? But uh, my feeling is that no matter how good the model is, what they can predict is still scenarios. There will be no way, no any model at least 
based on my knowledge, can predict if my house will be flooded or not. Because you think about that, we, have, we can have perfect model, but we never have perfect condition. For example, we can build a model, have hyper resolution, two meter, three meter, hyper resolution. But how about there is a falling tree right in front of your house? There's something we cannot predict, right? Nobody can predict that. So I think we run this simulation many, many times, and then we identify where are the hot spot, what is the probability. And I think that's the most effective way. We've been speaking with George Schwa, Associate Professor at the LSU Department of Oceanography and Coastal Science and LSU's Center for Computational Technology. Dr. Schwa, thank you for being here today. No problem. My pleasure. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. With carnival season underway, we are going back into the archives to hear some of our favorite Mardi Gras stories from years past. Today, in collaboration with WWNO's Thomas Walsh and StoryCorps, we bring you a 2015 conversation between two Mardi Gras Indians, Liddell Queen B. Bannister and Mary Jones, who discuss sewing personal pride into each stitch of their costumes. When you meet another Indian on the street, they will challenge you, just like it. they will walk up to you and I'm pretty this and you not this, that, and the other, sometimes even cursing, you know. They can challenge you and you can challenge them back, which I do. They can do this as long as you don't want to give them the peace signal and pass them up. But they're only supposed to stay arm length in front of you. They're not supposed to touch you because... They're challenging you for what you got on and what you're doing, and they touch you. That really is a fight. Everybody wants to be peaceful. I'm telling you like it is. If they touch you, that's a fight unless somebody stop it. It's time to put down your hat, to put down whatever you want to do, take your crown off and get ready because it's, it's, it's on, and I don't want to mess up my suit, so half the time I'll be trying to take my suit off or you won't mess it up because I got to wear it again. <laughs> Go ahead and fight. We're going to fight, but let me get my suit on first because I don't want to mess up my suit. This costs too much money, and I got to repair it because we got to have it for the rest of the year. We make a new suit every year, so I got to have this suit for a couple more days, and that's what's be on your mind. I try to be peaceful with people because I hate to be trying to get out my suit and fight. Because the suit is heavy, and I mean, you have on, you might have a zip in the back, and you ain't better get it. So then you just got to go ahead and fight, and my suit will get messed up. <laughs> and my teacher also say that too. Mary, don't worry about it. Let me talk. Go on by. Pass on by. Pass on by. Don't worry about it. Come on, let's go. I ain't got time. Because see, when my chief, he come out for a little while, and he'd like to go back to his house and cook for all the people that come from out of town that come to see him. And he cook all kind of food, and he just like to go back to his house and enjoy himself because he be tired. We be up all night sewing, putting the suit together, and he ready to go back home and take off that suit, eat and drink, and be happy. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're standing up there acting crazy, you know, don't know what you're talking about, they will start saying, if you're not going to roll, get the hell on out, out the way. way. <laughs> That's the way we play. That was a StoryCorps interview between two Mardi Gras Indians, Liddell Queen Bee Bannister and Mary Jones. You've been listening to Louisiana Considered from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. Thank you to today's guests, West Baton Rouge Parish 5th grade science teacher, Derricka Duncan, Ascension Parish elementary teacher, Elise Frederick, and LSU associate professor, George Schwa. 
Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can hear Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at noon and 7.30 p.m. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.